I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Sasha Ghosh Simonov, who's the executive director of People Demand Change. Sasha, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me on. Tell us a little bit about how you first became interested in foreign policy issues. Sure. Growing up, I had an interesting situation where I was failing two romance languages in middle school. And then I went on a field trip to a mosque. We were visiting all the major religions, religious sites in Cleveland, Ohio. So we went to a mosque. I got to see Arabic for the first time. Growing up, I had some contact with Hebrew, but basic Hebrew, nothing serious. But Arabic looked really cool, really interesting, and I'm left-handed and writing right to left is in a way easier than writing left to right. It is significantly (laughs) easier. It's so much easier. Are you both left-handed? Yeah. Wow. My handwriting improved like 200% writing in Arabic. Without a doubt. So uh, I got really interested in that, started learning it in 1998. So kind of interesting time to be learning Arabic. I nagged my parents until they caved and let me stop learning French so I could learn Arabic instead and stuck with that. And through that, I had the opportunity to experience both the language and how the language is embedded in numerous cultures in the Middle East. My Arabic teacher was Lebanese, so I ended up more focused on Levant, Lebanon, Syria, Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Iraq, like all these are countries that I have spent quite a bit of time focusing on and experiencing or visiting. So it went from there and then, as you know, we had 9-11 and we had our very long war on terror. And I watched as sort of attitudes, nuance and cultural competencies towards the Middle East kind of change over the course of 20 years during the war on terror. And it's an, we've arrived at an interesting place right now, but as a result, my Arabic language and interest has carried me through into foreign policy and the U.S.'s specific participation in foreign policy in the Middle East and what is our position there, what's our legacy, quote-unquote legacy there as well and very specifically our involvement in Syria and Iraq, especially over the last 10 to 15 years. And I had an opportunity to go to Aleppo in 2011 to do Arabic fluency. I was at the University of Aleppo from January to April of 2011, right when the revolution in Syria began. Wow, I imagine that being in Aleppo for a language program and then finding yourself in the sort of opening days of the Syrian revolution must have been intense. Would love to hear a little bit more about what that experience was like. And also, you know, it's obviously shaped your interests, but has it also shaped your understanding of of foreign policy and, and national security? So it was interesting. It was like right before So at the time, like January, February of 2011, Egypt was already a thing, as was Tunisia, and they were already influencing the internal debate in Syria, although that debate could not be held openly. It was tricky 
to discuss such things because Syria is at the end of the day an authoritarian state which puts people in jail for thinking the wrong thoughts. So you had to be careful, but there were already these things called days of rage, which were Facebook-oriented initiated protests. So there was some days of rage very early on in Damascus, but you could say it was done by a more educated activist elite versus when you had the real kickoff of the revolution in Syria, which is largely considered to be March 15, 2011 in Dara, that had to do more with average people protesting a very concrete injustice against the authorities that then ballooned into this massive organic protest movement that swept Syria, which if I spoke with people when I was speaking with people in January and February of 2011 in Syria, I'd be like, ah, do you think there'll ever be change here? And in Syria, they said, no, there'll be change in Saudi Arabia first before there's change here. They were so convinced that there was no possible way for a revolution of the scope and size that we were seeing in other countries in the Middle East to ever occur in Syria under the current conditions with the Assad regime in power. But simultaneously, I spent a lot of time in rural areas in Idlib, where discontent with the Assad regime spans decades, where there was a lot of people who, frankly, were hoping and waiting for a moment where, where they could vocally express their discontent and see change, not just because of the Arab Spring, but just in general, the high level of corruption in daily life in Syria meant that it was a real chore just to do basic things, like try to own and operate a small business without having to bribe everyone left, right, and center in order to get the licensing and the permissions. And, you know, it was just like every everything required a bribe or required wasta, right? Required influence in order to to just to just make it by. Unemployment was high, even if you had an education. Housing was hard to come by, meaning in a number of instances, getting married was difficult because usually you needed to be able to afford a, an apartment or a house. So there was a lot of issues that collided in Syria at the same time that the Arab Spring occurred and really pushed a lot of people to be like, look, I just don't have much to lose by protesting against the regime, even though it's dangerous and it's tricky. For me personally, having protested the Iraq war when I was in high school and I watched a lot of friends who were joining the military get stop lost and forced to do multiple tours in Iraq, even though they didn't want to, watching our war in Afghanistan that seemed to have no strategy of any kind, and then juxtaposing that with, frankly, our lack of any initiative to support this democratic movement in Syria, where it's not enforced regime change. We're talking about people across a wide spectrum of Syrian society demanding their rights, demanding, demanding a democratic opening in their society. And the United States essentially said, this is not our problem, and did very little to support that. And we watched then the country implode. And as it imploded, it took the whole region with it and has had a ripple effect across 
much of the world, Europe's politics being one of them, our current posture in the Middle East has all been affected by Syria. And even though it's kind of a forgotten conflict, it still very much impacts policy on a day-to-day level. So I think for me, my main lesson learned from Syria was that a intervention can be dangerous, but non-intervention can also be dangerous. And whether it's an intervention or it's a decision not to intervene, it needs to be based on sound policy. It can't just be a knee-jerk reaction either to a previous experience our country had. So for example, when we talked, when I and others talked with the with the Obama administration repeatedly, they're like, we're not going to do Iraq all over again. But we're like, but Iraq, what we did in Iraq and what's going on in Syria are two radically different things. They're fundamentally different countries. Yes, they both had the Ba'ath Party, but even like how the Ba'ath Party came about in Syria and Iraq is, is very different and have very different historic trajectories. So we felt like there was just a lot of PTSD within the foreign policy community over Iraq that informed their policy in Syria. And I think that was a mistake. That was one of the things I learned. Fast forwarding a little bit, just this past week, Russian President Vladimir Putin was in Tehran to speak with Iran and Turkey about the war in Ukraine. But there was a lot of conversation about what's going on in Syria. Can you give us a lay of the land about the current situation in Syria and how these three regional powers are sort of interacting with it? It's quite unique, the relationship that the three of these countries have with one another and seeing all the various regional and global crises that they're all mutually entangled with. Sometimes they're on the same side, sometimes they're on opposing sides, but even when they're on opposing sides, they always find a way to maintain a relationship and like an open communication between the three countries. So it's very interesting. And they all have various degrees of economic interests with one another, especially Turkey and Russia, but even like Iran and Russia, for example, like recently, Gazprom and Iran's National Oil Company also signed like a MOU worth $40 billion to look at liquid natural gas and other opportunities to develop other gas pipelines and gas and oil fields. So there's between the three of them quite a bit of mutual reliance and economic need that creates some very strange bedfellows. (laughs) Turkey has not sanctioned Russia over Ukraine yet and has been working very hard to broker a deal between Ukraine and Russia over the export of grain, which seemed successful until Russia fired missiles into Odessa port. So we'll wait to see if that deal will in fact go through or not. On the other hand, Iran and Russia are on one side in the Syrian conflict. They support the Bashar al-Assad regime. On the other side, you have Turkey that has supported a myriad of Syrian opposition groups, mostly in in the northwest of the country. Turkey's military, along with opposition forces, physically controlled territory. There's physical Turkish troops on Syrian soil. There's Russian troops on Syrian soil. There's Iranian troops on Syrian soil. 
in addition to American troops that are also on Syrian soil. You have the who's who of everyone's military on Syrian soil for a whole different set of security reasons, counterterrorism reasons, political reasons. Would you see a potential future of the Syrian conflict be a partition of some kind? The sad reality is like Syria is already partitioned in all but name. It's sort of like Somalia in the sense that the international community is not willing to say that Somalia, from a functional standpoint, is no longer a cohesive sovereign entity. It is multiple countries now and has been for a while. In the same vein, I mean, like Syria is, you could say, three to four areas of control. The regime has one area of control. The SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, backed by the United States, has another area of control. The Turks have another area of control. And then finally, there's an area of control in northwest Syria that's controlled by a non-state actor called HTS that is several derivations away from what used to be called Jabhat al-Nusra, which used to have links to al-Qaeda. There's some dispute about whether they're currently linked to al-Qaeda or not, but they have their own sphere of control. So they all have different governance structures. They all require different forms of registration to operate (laughs) in those areas. If you're any sort of humanitarian organization or INGO or NGO, and you want to work in Syria, you can't have one single headquarters operating for your entire operations in country. you got to bifurcate everything. So your operations for northwest Syria are based out of Turkey, probably. Your operations in northeast Syria are based out of Iraq. Your operations for regime-held Syria are probably based out of Lebanon or Jordan. We could see like a de facto partition of Syria. The hard part is getting the international community to either admit that that is what the reality is and make do with it, or really go back to the table and say, hey, we're going to spend the political capital and the time and the money required to solve this conflict and bring an end to this conflict, which I don't see anyone has any interest to do at the moment. Do you think that a more formal recognition by the international community of the de facto fragmentation and splintering of Syria would actually enable there to be more effective policymaking in the region and perhaps hasten a resolution toward peace? Is that an avenue or strategy that you might advocate for? So I think at this juncture, I'm not sure that that is a strategy I would advocate for. But what I think is important is that the West needs to decide what its policy is towards Syria overall. The West's policy, and especially the United States' policy towards Syria for the last 11 years has been extremely inconsistent, versus the Russians and the Iranians have been very consistent in their policy and have backed their side, i.e. the Assad regime, to the hilt. No matter what happened, ups or downs, they were always there, always backing them. And that has borne out that, you know, over the last 11 years, you know, the Assad regime is still very much in power and controls 60% of the territory in Syria, 55 to 60% somewhere in there. But for the West, sometimes they back the opposition groups, sometimes they don't, sometimes they back 
groups if they're fighting ISIS, but only can fight ISIS, but not the Assad regime. I mean, like our policy objectives changed repeatedly in Syria without any continuity. Where I'm frustrated is that right now all I see is us providing aid, humanitarian aid, which is very important, and providing basic stabilization development assistance. This is all a Band-Aid on a gaping wound that requires surgery. For Syria being such a naughty problem, it didn't seem like it came up a lot on Biden's Middle East trip. Biden, of course, just got back this week from the Middle East. What did you make of the trip as a whole? And what do you think about sort of the missing Syria piece? You know, his trip was focused on two major allies in the Middle East for the United States, Israel and Saudi Arabia. Both have complicated and somewhat contentious relationships currently with the United States for for various reasons, but they're all also interlaced into other U.S. policy goals and objectives in the Middle East, primarily whether or not the United States will return to the JCPOA in some form or not with Iran, under what conditions. Obviously, the Gulf was never in favor and Israel was never in favor of joining the JCPOA in the first place. The Israelis and many Gulf countries have questions about U.S. commitment to the region, especially with lots of discussions about pivoting towards dealing with China and now having it to refocus again on Russian aggression. So amidst all of that, I think there are broader security concerns in which Syria is just one of numerous issues that the Biden administration is attempting to tackle vis-a-vis its relationships with people in the region. Under the table, though, frankly, as example, I mean, Israel continues to do airstrikes in Syria against Hezbollah and IRGC positions. That has not changed. Israel has major concerns about Iran's current posture in Syria, military posture in Syria. And at the same time, while the Gulf is not engaged in the Syrian conflict nearly as much, the Iranian backing for the Houthi rebels in Yemen creates another set of issues and problems that have yet really to be addressed. And like it or not, right, the United States has been the the consistent military backer of both of these nations since the modern inception of both countries, essentially. So there's longstanding relations but they're both tricky and have created pitfalls over the last decade for all three countries. Another issue that didn't come up really was the Israel-Palestine problem. It just made me think that after the Abraham Accords, so what do you make of this lack of conversation about this issue, which used to be the center of Middle East policy? The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is like a portfolio akin to being handed the immigration portfolio domestically here in the United States. It's seen as a lose-lose file in which no matter what you do, if you're the person in charge of that file, you're, you're, you're not going to win. And as a result, subsequent administrations just don't want to touch it and don't really want to deal with it. 
um, short of a third intifada or a major war in which Israel takes serious losses on the ground from a military and civilian perspective, I don't think they really want to engage because I don't think they see a real way out. The political leadership over the last decade in Israel is a hard right leadership that has no intention of negotiating in good faith with their Palestinian counterparts. And their Palestinian counterparts are, from a leadership standpoint, fragmented and not in the best position to negotiate from a point of strength with the Israelis without political leadership really prepared to do that on either side, that just leaves the civilians, the civil society, who all have other constraints that make it difficult to engage in meaningful dialogue sometimes, especially I'm sure over the last two and a half years during the pandemic, I'm not sure how much engagement there's really been on that level in a meaningful way. And that has, that, you know, that has consequences for for policy. And so as a result, the Biden administration is looking at all the other issues and problems they have and just doesn't feel they're equipped or have the political capital right now domestically and internationally to spend on trying another yet another attempt to create or facilitate negotiations between the Israelis and Palestinians, which I think is really a shame because at the end of the day, it's really the Palestinians that lose out from this type of policy, especially when you're reading the joint declaration that the Americans and the Israelis signed during the trip made no real mention at all of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or the need to push that issue forward, simply just saying like they're going to do the best they can, and then reiterating the United States and Israel's longstanding security arrangement and friendship and rejection of the BDS movement and spending a lot of time discussing fighting anti-Semitism, which is all fine and well, but I think it really skirts the underlying problem in terms of Israel's place in the Middle East and its dynamics writ large is finding a way to solve this, this issue end the occupation and find a way for a Palestinian state to emerge on stable footing per the agreement, all the myriad of agreements that the United States, Israel, the Palestinians, and many others have signed over the last couple decades. So I think it's really a shame. And I think at the end of the day, Palestinians are losing out as a result. And frankly, I was really disappointed also that there was no discussion or real mention of Shireen Abu Akleh's killing. She is Palestinian-American. So she is a Palestinian and American citizen who was killed by the IDF. And the United States's response to one of its own citizens being killed has been lukewarm, frankly. And I think that had it been anyone else, the response would have been much stronger. And there would have been an attempt to push 
for a much more open and transparent in investigation. And I think that's really important for us as a country if we're going to discuss human rights and democracy and accountability and freedom of the press to see a journalist of her caliber and her renown to be gunned down while doing her job. It's our responsibility as a democracy to say something, say it loud and say it forcefully. And I don't think we've done that and we should have. I guess that sort of surprised me, surprises me that the Biden administration would fail to call that out. And I'm curious to what extent you were surprised or or whether you feel like this is a sort of pattern based on policy stance towards the Israel-Palestine conflict generally. But I mean, it's just a really weird juxtaposition. He visited Saudi Arabia, where our own intelligence report says Jamal Khashoggi's killing was authorized by MBS. While on the other hand, we, he visits Israel, another journalist killed by the state, maybe not on the orders of the state itself, but a state actor participated in her killing. And our response was sort of like, yeah, that's really sad. And we hope that there will be a proper investigation. Oh, by the way, please, Palestinian Authority, hand the bullet over to the IDF so they can do analysis. And then when it finally happens, they go, well, from the analysis and the reporting, it's unclear to us who killed her. I mean, that's that's not a response. That's not an answer. And it does a disservice to our own people who, like those of us who work broad in foreign policy in the aid and development space and the diplomatic space, like to an extent when we're operating overseas, we expect that our citizenship means that our government will fight and defend our rights and our freedoms or pursue justice on our behalf if, if we die overseas. And I don't see that that's happening in Shireen's case. And I think that's a mistake. I don't know how it can be rectified, but, you know, it was just a very, it's very strange, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and then the two very different reactions there have been thus far, two very high profile killings of two journalists. You mentioned Saudi and Biden has, you know, I think gotten some heat recently for his visit with Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, and the sort of, you know, the fist bump getting off the plane and so forth. What is your analysis of like what, how we should understand this visit in the context of U.S. policy towards Saudi? I would say we should view this as the status quo. No matter who has been in charge of the White House, they've always found a way to maintain a very high-level direct relationship with the Saudi royal family. And we have a lot of political and military interests between the two countries that are fundamentally intertwined in ways that go very deep and are hard to untangle. And you would think that would mean that we could, as a government, sit and tell the Saudis, look, what happened with Jamal Khashoggi is a problem for us and creates 
problems for us in terms of keeping our relationship on a positive trajectory. And we are your ally. We are your friend. So when we tell you this is a problem, we're telling it to you as your ally and your friend. But it seems that that kind of honest criticism and discussion is not well received from the Saudi side. And as a result, it has created a lot of tensions. But the relationship, again, between the United States and Saudi goes well past the presidency. And I think there's multiple layers of bureaucracy and political, military, and economic ties at various levels that have allowed Saudi and the United States' relationship to continue unabated despite what happened. Fundamentally, I don't see that changing. I think what basically Biden did was go and acknowledge the reality. And it's a reality that those of us, especially who work in the democracy and human rights space, have a big problem with. But overall, the United States has never prioritized democracy and human rights over economic and national security interests. We'll do democracy and human rights if we can do it without jeopardizing those other two. But frankly, if those other two are in jeopardy, then sorry, economics and national security will come first, democracy and human rights will come second. And it really hasn't mattered whether it's Democrats or Republicans in power in the White House. That has always been the status quo in much of the Middle East forever, for as long as we've had a presence, a meaningful presence in the Middle East. So on that cheery note, let's turn to our final segment where we each talk about something we're following in the news, either politically or culturally. Zoe, why don't you kick us off? I've been following the news that broke earlier this week that Myanmar's military regime recently executed four pro-democracy activists, which is meaningful because it really sort of marks the first executions in Myanmar in several decades. And I think it's signal that a lot of folks' greatest fears are true when it comes to the direction that the the regime is taking um, against people advocating for freedom and, and for democracy. And there are now something like 12,000 political prisoners who are behind bars in the country. And that also includes Aung San Suu Kyi, who was the Nobel Peace Prize laureate, who has been convicted and sentenced to, I think, over a decade in prison. I spent some time working on some Myanmar-related issues a number of years ago and remember very fondly how much excitement and hope and optimism there was in 2016, you know, 2017. And so it's been particularly hard to to absorb this news and the series of events that have unfolded in Myanmar in the last couple of years. Sasha, what are you following this week? So I'm going to go full pop culture and express my excitement for Black Panther Wakanda Forever, the sequel to Black Panther. As someone who grew up collecting Marvel cards and Marvel action figures and reading Marvel comics, which was seen as pretty nerdy back in the day, watching that entire universe come to life 
on television and on the big screen has been just so amazing. And I'm so excited for phase five of the MCU and everything else coming forward. And I just think they've been doing so many wonderful things with Marvel and I'm just really excited. So yes, Wakanda forever. (laughs) Excellent. So this week I wanted to highlight the end of the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring is seen as beginning on December 17th, 2010 in Tunisia, where Tariq El-Tayeb Mohamed Bouazizi lit himself on fire to protest the confiscation of his wares and the harassment and humiliation inflicted on him by a municipal official and her aides. This act whipped up protests across North Africa and the Middle East for freedom and democracy. And while many countries quashed the protest or slid quickly back into authoritarianism, Tunisia was seen as a bright spot. While we're recording this on Monday, July 25th, Tunisians are at the polls to approve a new constitution that guts checks and balances and basically rubber stamps the current president's ruling by decree. The vote's going to pass, not because the majority want it, but because the president has seized power and has been functioning as a dictator for months. I hate to highlight this again after I said it last week, but COVID, inflation, and the food crisis, I fear, will cause even more fragile democracies to slip. So America needs to step up and find ways to backstop these states in transition before they all move away from democracy. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grand Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Sasha at S. Simonoff. If you are a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. Normally, I make a joke sponsor to end the episode, but honestly, I could not have possibly made up something as good as this. So this week's episode is brought to you by the cocktail of the summer, the Veltini. What's in the Veltini, you ask? Oh, just Velveeta-infused vodka, olive brine, and vermouth in a martini glass, which is garnished with a cheese drip and a cocktail pick of Velveeta stuffed olives and jumbo Velveeta shells and cheese. You can get this very real product at any BLT restaurant group restaurant. And after you drink it, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.